mean, it's just like I said, it seems like that's just sort of, I mean, that's kind of how you know you're in like kind of a pivotal deep event or in the, you know, outskirts of it or something, because it just seems like you start seeing all these crazy figures and, you know, secret societies and just weird, you know, occult mesophysical stuff and... I mean, I don't, you know, I think that's just sort of like, I don't know, the power of certain events like the Kennedy assassination, Perfumo, Watergate, they were just so overwhelming that they've just reverberated throughout history in a certain sense. And I mean, I think in a way, I mean, just the power of them even emerging, them coming together, I mean, it just drew all of these people there. And uh, a lot of them, I mean, probably, you know, it was just pure synchronicity that they were there. But I mean, it was just the power of the events themselves that brought all of these different organizations and characters together. And it definitely seems like, you know, you had something like that in Kentucky and maybe it's still unfolding to this day. I mean, it's really incredible. Is Alexander Guterma? That question is not so easily answered. Guterma says that he was born in Siberia in 1915. His father was a Russian czarist army general. His family fled Russia during the Russian Revolution to China, where a lot of white Russian nationals were congregating. Immigration documents show that Guterma ended up in Honolulu, Hawaii in 1935. During World War II, he was discovered working at a radio repair shop by U.S. intelligence agents. They detained him, and ultimately, we don't know why they detained him. We have certain suspicions why they detained him, but nevertheless, he ended up being deported to Japan, where he ended up in a POW camp. According to his story, the POW camp was bombed by Allied planes, and he was able to escape the POW camp. His escape led him to the Philippines, where for a time during the war, again, this is his own recounting, he supposedly ran guns uh, to the uh, Filipino guerrillas. And somewhere in, in spending time in the Philippines, he managed to win the favor of a number of Filipino businessmen. And these businessmen propped him up, and he began to run a casino in the Philippines. So, like, I, I mean, one of the really weird things that, um, that, that we came across is that um, there was, when I was looking up Guterma, you know, I, I kept thinking uh, there should be some trace of Guterma before he shows up here, has all this money and all this stuff, you know, and, and he has this weird backstory about being from this czarist family and his mom was, you know, basically living in exile or whatever that um, there was this interesting article or not an article, but a comment that was published 
in a couple of newspapers uh, that associated Guterma with a guy named Ted Lewin. This Ted Lewin guy turned out to be the missing connection to a lot of Guterma's weird backstory. The, the the thing about Ted Lewin is he was he was running a casino in um in the Philippines uh, during World War II, and Guterma shows up in Hawaii around this time uh, in the forties. Uh, Ted Lewin was in Hawaii during the forties. Um, and he, he was run, he was basically running this casino, um, in, in Manila called the key club. And this casino was one of the, either the nicest casino in Mil- in Manila at the time, or the, one of the top two nicest casinos. There were, there were a lot of casinos and this, this club associated him with a lot of mafia stuff. Right. And, uh, Ted Lewin himself actually ends up, uh, in a weird situation where he kidnaps a baby from Roswell, New Mexico, where one of his dancers, the, the, the baby had gone to live with the father and, and, and he goes to, he, he flies to LA drives out to Roswell, New Mexico, kidnaps a baby, and then, then takes it back to the Philippines, right? That's that's actually why he was ended up. I mean, he ended up in in trouble over that. But um, one of the dancers that had danced at uh, at his casino ended up marrying a Mexican film director. And I found this strange article where it was it was about this dancer who had ended up. Um, moving to Mexico. And I think it was from a Mexican um, magazine, maybe that, that sort of highlighted this, this dancer and she had danced at at his place and everything, but um, she, she called herself Sandy Sanderson. And that really is uh, really strange because um, in Guterma's first encounters with the, with the authorities, he, he, one of his aliases was, uh, uh, Sandy McSand. Right. And I, you know, and I thought, well, maybe there is something to this. Right. So I started the, that's, that's originally how I found the, the, the dancer and everything, but I was trying to find out if he could have used some other name. And this is where I first found that there was a discrepancy between, the way he was described later, like in the seventies, sixties and seventies versus how he was described in the fifties. And he was more often than not referred to as Alexander Gooderman, like with an N on the end. Right. And so if you use that as, as a term, you could find, you know, quite a few articles about him early on. He was an enigma. Even the newspapers, all the newspapers that referred to him called him Mr. X. He came to the United States with Anita McGrath, moved into Florida, started this Canaf company. Canaf was basically used to create paper. Um, there were a lot of Canaf companies in Cuba. He had some dealings with Cuba as a result of owning the Canaf Fiber Company. Within six months of coming to the United States, Guterma was able to amass a large fortune. And in the coming years between 1950 and 1959, he became one of the largest stock market players. He used some very dodgy financial maneuvering to take control of a number of companies. Among them were the Bonami Company, which was a scouring powder 
company, F.L. Jacobs Company, an auto parts maker, the Scranton Corporation, formerly a lace manufacturer, but later became a holding company that he used, Hal Roach Studios, the Mutual Broadcasting System, Shawano Development Company, Western Financial Corporation, another holding company, Micro Moisture Controls, which dealt with electronic devices, McGrath Securities, a brokerage firm named after his wife, and United Hotels Corporation. After Florida, he's in Florida, living in Florida for what, six months, a year, and then suddenly moves to maybe the richest area of all of America, Greenwich, Connecticut. And like, he's, it's unbelievable. Like the top brass live in in this, you can't you can't walk in that neighborhood without thousands of dollars in your pocket. You know, is he even legally in this country? Who knows? But he is living the good life here. You know, uh, he ends up getting involved in uh, overthrowing the the government uh, of the Dominican Republic. He um, gets caught and serves time for stock manipulation. The biggest stock manipulation, what was this, 59? Yeah. Um, Like, gets caught in 59, the biggest stock manipulation up until that point in the history of the stock market. And basically gets a slap on the wrist. A few years in prison, not long, and rebuilds his empire. Whatever his actual history, which we'll probably never really know who Alexander Guterma was or really where it came from. We know that he was involved in a number of nefarious plots linked to and convicted of criminal activity. Well, after he emerged from prison in the 1960s and became a land developer in Florida, he began to purchase mine contracts, coal companies, oil companies, uranium companies. One of those companies that he acquired in 1975 was the Mount Victory Coal Company in Somerset, Kentucky. He acquired that company from none other than Lester Burns Jr., who sold the land to Guterma for $15 million, a hefty amount at the time. And mind you, an incidental to the story, but nonetheless very interesting. Afterwards, Lester took that money and purchased property in Florida, a house next door to Richard Nixon. When we first came across the the article, I was like, I could not believe that there was ever coal produced in any any quantity. That mine does have a long, weird history. That's that's for sure. But um, but it was it. Well, you're not your immediate thought isn't that there was a lot of coal industry down there to pay that kind of money for that land, right? And so it does make you wonder how he ended up here. But he he bought. Uh, the mine did produce a little bit of coal. I, I think it was $15 million, I believe. Uh, so it was, uh, and, and it wasn't, it works out to a lot per acre. More than that land is worth now, for sure, you know. After purchasing the mine, Guterma moved to Woodson Bend, one of many lavish resorts that had popped up on Lake Cumberland. Guterma's not someone who moves somewhere and stays quiet. He was known for his ego. One of these articles that I found, he he was recounting some of the things that had happened, you know, early in early on in his uh, his career, and he refers to himself 
as running his companies like a damn genius, you know, like he's, he's very arrogant. And, and although you don't see a lot of his words, that does come through in every description people have. him. they, they just felt like he was, you know, uh, I, I think in one case, while he was still in jail, he ended up having so much more legal knowledge that he was consulted. Like, I think that prison guards actually consulted him for legal advice in one part. When Guterma went anywhere, he made sure everyone knew who he was. But despite that, we've never been able to find anyone that knows who Alexander Guterma was, that has even heard of him in Pulaski County. But we 100% know that he moved his entire financial operation here in 1975, he moved his entire family here. But he's a ghost. No one remembers him. Yeah, people people we asked lawyers, we we asked people that were prominent, like not just people that lived out in the county and worked a factory job, people that were prominent in building the town and knowing what you needed to know to be one of the main players in Somerset, you know, to get laws passed or to get uh, funding for something. Like these type of people have never heard of uh, the newspaper called him Mr. X. And so, I mean, he lives up to that name, doesn't he? That <laughs> no one knew who the hell this guy was. Guterma was a financial wizard, a financial magician, and he could make money disappear and reappear. And that is a skill that's extremely useful for many different groups, including intelligence operations and criminal syndicates operations like the mob. It's very likely that Guterma was using these skills to assist in money laundering and other activities with spooks and mobsters alike. They, in all of these cases, there were large amounts of money that were being shifted uh, through people that came out later to be CIA operatives. So uh, a lot of the people that show up as, as giving him his seed money to, to invest in this company or, or whatever people trusted him to be sort of a wizard of moving money around and and could be for money laundering purposes. We're not sure, but he does seem to be connected with a mob family in Newport, Kentucky. And, um, that is, uh, directly connected to, um, the, to Las Vegas. And that's another strange thing is that he was a partner in the desert Inn in, in the 1950s. And, um, he, uh, he was, uh, partners in that with some of the, the early money that was in Las Vegas and Mo Dollitz is at the, at the center of that. Uh, and that's, that's uh, how he is. That's ultimately how he is connected to the JFK assassination in that he's mentioned in the gemstone files through those, that series of connections. Guterma also was an owner in the desert Inn, a hotel and casino on the Las Vegas strip famous as the debut location of Frank Sinatra. In 1967, the U S was regularly testing nuclear bombs in the Nevada desert, less than 65 miles from Las Vegas. Every few days, another explosion would rattle the windows of the casinos. Folks would gather in the sky room at the Desert Inn, pour themselves a cocktail, have a martini, and watch the flash from the bomb. 
the mob connections that Guterma made while a partner at the Desert Inn no doubt led him back to Kentucky and the schemes in the 1970s in the coal industry. It's very likely that Guterma's connections to the CIA and other clandestine organizations and to the mob put him in a perfect position to be a financial wizard for hiding money. It, during the construction of the Desert Inn, the the guy building that ran out of money, right? And so he didn't have uh, good sources uh, of getting the money. The mob actually bailed him out and, and gave him the money to finish the construction of it. This is how Ted Lewin gets involved with the Desert Inn. This is how Guterma gets involved with it, right? And so uh, that's how Modalitz ends up involved with the Desert Inn, right? And Modalitz is the one that coordinated the money to finance the the, the rest of the construction of it. And so the, the, the Desert Inn is so key to the whole story, though. Why was Guterma here in the 1970s? Why did he buy the mine? Well, when we spoke with Steven Snyder, he had some ideas on why people might have been getting their hands dirty in coal mines in eastern Kentucky and southern Kentucky in the 1970s. All right. So one of the things I was looking into was trying to find um, some of the other associates of Guterma. And um, I happened upon a really uh, interesting book in this regard. Uh, one second. OK, so this book was called The Killing Game by Gary Webb, which I thought was pretty insane because um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Gary Webb, but he is uh, the author of Dark Alliance, which was based upon a series of stories that he had published in the mid 90s. And essentially, he was the first journalist to reveal the CIA's connections to trafficking cocaine during the 1980s and um, how it had basically fueled the crack cocaine epidemic in you know Los Angeles and what have you during that same decade. Uh, Mr. Webb uh, unfortunately committed suicide by shooting himself twice in the head uh, in 2004. Uh, but yes, he was a fabulous journalist and uh, it was kind of funny to me that it turns out I guess his first really big job was uh, at the Kentucky Post. So he actually wrote a series of articles on um, a lot of the shenanigans that were going on in the coal companies during the 1970s, why he was an investigative journalist there that are really excellent. And they gave a lot of insight into this. But um, essentially going back to the uh, the Arab oil embargo that broke out in the early 70s, uh, you know, this drove the price of oil in the country up to a phenomenal amount. And one of the things that the Nixon administration had opted to do to try to counter this was to encourage more coal mining. So they offered all these tax incentives and what have you. And this got a lot of these, you know, kind of security fraud specialists and a lot of organized crime figures to flock to Kentucky and other coal states in the 1970s, because essentially you could use these, you know, derelict coal companies to launder drug money and that type of thing. And you could get very generous tax rebates from it. I think that's one of the reasons why Guterma's mind actually never produced any coal, because essentially he would have gotten a um, much more generous tax break uh, that way found one of the individuals who appears to have been a business associate of him. They actually maintained offices in the same uh, building in Kentucky, and they had another mutual friend, Sinclair Robinson, that they did work with. And this guy's name was Peter Crosby. Peter Crosby was also a stock swindler from New York who had relocated to Kentucky in the mid-70s. Uh, he had a lot of organized crime ties, most notably to... Um, Dino Selenia, 
who was a big guy with Mir Lansky. He had been involved in the casinos in Cuba in the 50s before the revolution and so forth. Uh, he had also been involved in, you know, these kind of sex trafficking rings and what have you in Europe with Lansky and uh, Joe Neslin, who was the uh, boss of bosses in the D.C. area for a lot of years. So Cellini was definitely a really big figure. Now, uh, going into the late 1960s, his brother, James Crosby, had broken into uh, the gaming industry in a big way. Uh, he took this company, the Mary Carter Paint Company, and this entity has a mysterious history as well. It was set up in the Florida in Florida during the early 1960s, and there's a lot of speculation that it had been used as a front by the CIA to provide the Anticastro Cubans with IR arms and money and what have you leading up to the Bay of Pigs and for some years afterwards. So anyway, Crosby ended up in control of this entity around the mid to late 60s. He changes the name of it to Resorts International, and um, he sets it up to basically establish a casino in the Bahamas and Paradise Island. And the mob was, of course, very interested in this after they had lost Cuba. And by this point in time, it seemed pretty evident that we weren't going to rescue Cuba back from Castro anytime soon. So... A lot of Lansky figures, including Eddie Salina, Dino's brother, started going into Resorts International. But Resorts had a lot of other curious backers, too, one of them being uh, Richard Nixon, who was actually present uh, for the opening of the casino in Paradise Island in 1968 at the party they had there. Another interesting supporter was uh, William Mellon Hitchcock. Mr. Billy, he was Thomas Corbley's friend. They had kept a flat in London that had been used for all these sex parties and what have you. And Corbley, of course, was a private detective long suspected of U.S. intelligence ties. He did a lot of work for Roy Cohn, and then later he did a lot of work for Donald Trump. Uh, anyway, so Mr. Billy, after he got back uh, from the U.K. to the U.S. in the uh, around 1963, he started becoming Timothy Leary's patron. Then from there, he headed out to the West Coast and became the financier for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which had become the largest LSD trafficking ring in the world by the late 1960s. So Mr. Billy got involved with resorts right around the time he was at the peak of his uh, you know, prowess in the LSD racket and so forth. And then on top of that, uh, Resorts International also effectively had its own um, private intelligence company, essentially. It was called Intertel, and it was headed by a man named Peliquin. I think it was Robert or Roger Peliquin. I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, he was a veteran of the Office of Naval Intelligence. He had been in the reserves for decades. He had later gone to work for the Department of Treasury uh, with Robert Kennedy, ironically, going after the mob. He then kind of appears to have switched sides when he retired. But um, Intertel had a lot of other you know, ex-FBI guys, some army intelligence, a lot of that type of thing. And Intertel really gained notoriety in 1970. I believe it was 1970 when they absconded with Howard Hughes from his heavily fortified um, uh, casino in Las Vegas. And from there, Hughes would basically have a nomadic existence being flown around the world in different planes and so forth. Intertel would continue to remain Hughes's private security company and essentially his de facto keepers, you know, until his death in the mid 70s. And, you know, again, you got to remember, Hughes was one of the richest men in the world at this time, and his company was in league with a lot of highly classified work for the U.S. military and so forth. And Intertel were basically the gatekeepers to Hughes. And this was the private, you know, security company that was owned wholesale by Resorts International. So, 
resorts was a big deal. I mean, it was really a merger of underworld figures and, you know, overworld figures like Richard Nixon and a lot of these, you know, intelligence officers and so forth. It was very, very powerful. And James Crosby was the head of Resorts International for many years. And Peter Crosby was his brother. Peter had had some involvement with resorts, I believe, up until the late 60s, early 70s, when finally his history of association with the mob and his stock fraud and what have you became a bit of an embarrassment. And in theory, James had cut him off and was no longer talking to him. So this is around the time Peter ends up in Kentucky and he gets involved in all of these shenanigans with the coal mines and what have you with these other uh, syndicate link figures who I'll get to in a second. So. Uh, I found one more reference to Peter Crosby that came up, and this was in the 1980s, uh, 1987, I believe, when his brother James had died. The Crosby family and another family that had owned resorts for years, the Murphy family, had decided that they had wanted to sell off the shares and find somebody else to take over. And they did find a very interested buyer. Of course, at the time, resorts was really big in Atlanta, Atlanta City. Atlantic City, that was where, you know, they had been instrumental in actually opening up Atlantic City to uh, gambling. And uh, there, there was a up-and-coming casino mogul called Donald Trump, who uh, wanted to buy Resorts International. And uh, he managed to accomplish that and became the CEO of Resorts International in uh, 1987, I believe it was. And uh, he was able to manage this in part by buying Peter Crosby's shares that his brother had left him. Uh, 40,000 shares, I believe, to a brother convicted of stock fraud that he allegedly hadn't uh, spoken to in years, left him his shares in Resorts International, and Peter turned around and sold those to Donald Trump. Yeah, like I said, Guterma just seems like he was tied up with all of these, you know, guys like Mira Lansky and the people involved with him. And I mean, there were just some strange characters. I mean, this Dino Selenia guy who Peter Crosby was a close associate of, in addition to like all of the connections he had to Mira Lansky and the mafia, he was also uh, in contact with um, Odo Scorzini, Scorzini, I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, the infamous SS man who had been Hitler's fam- uh, favorite commando, um, he was really a major figure in the post-war SS underground. He provided mercenaries for a lot of different things, involved in a host of black operations and whatnot. So, you know, this there were just an insane amount of connections that resorts possessed when you kind of look through all these different ties and whatnot. There's a theory amongst some researchers that... Guterma was a German intelligence operative who had come to the U.S. through programs initiated by the Dulles brothers. John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State during the Eisenhower administration. His brother, Alan Dulles, is responsible for the creation of the CIA. They worked with German officials in the post-World War II era to bring German scientists to the U.S., and most people are familiar with that program, Project Paperclip. But there were a number of other projects that were also initiated, and one of those was the Galen Organization. It was headed by Reinhard Galen, head of the Nazi German military intelligence on the Eastern Front during World War II. The U.S. used Galen to bring a number of valuable German intelligence agents to the U.S. in the post-war years. 
It's well known that the Germans had agents in the Pacific Theater. Many of these agents were the abware, and many of them were captured working in radio repair stations as they were using the radio repair shops to transmit secret intelligence messages to the Japanese. I find it odd, and these researchers obviously found it odd, that Guterma was apprehended and detained by U.S. intelligence services working at a repair shop in Hawaii before he was deported to Japan as a POW. Those files remain classified. I don't know. There, there's so much mystery about who he could have been because, in by all accounts, he either had he had a, a very American accent, and in one case, by his own uh, in his own story, he may have been, or he says that he was a prisoner of war because they thought he was an American. Right. Uh, this is sort of a strange thing for for someone a Russian speaker, for example, it's really rare for a Russian speaker to have an accent so good that you would mistake them for being an American. It's less rare of a German speaker though, um, which is interesting because uh, English is of course a Germanic language. There's so much uh, congruence. German's a lot more complex still. So when a German speaker learns English, they can often come off as if they don't, no English. And this leads to one of the things that I think is probably a key to establishing him as, as possibly a German is that um, in all of the articles describing his American accent, he's referred to as either having a New York accent or a New Orleans accent, right? This, this sort of sets up his, his connections too, because he is associated with some of the New Orleans mob families and, uh, and, all of that. So that's, it's interesting that that might just be in the circle of people he was interacting with, but in both of those accents, uh, the, the character, the feature, the, the most characteristic feature is dropping the R. And of course, in German, they always drop the R, right? They don't say an R the way that we say it. And so, uh, I do think there's quite a bit that lends itself to him being German, you know, now, when we were looking at this case, when we started digging into who Guterma was, we thought we had found every piece of documentation on Guterma, everything. And Darian and I, we work with data mining. We, we've developed software for clients of ours. We're familiar with research, deep data dives. And so we felt like we had gotten every single piece of information that we could publicly find on Alexander Guterma and on the Mount Victory coal mine. Everything. We had a history of it. We knew the prior owners. We knew where it was now. And despite all of that, suddenly there was this weird twist. There was this document that said Lester Burns' business partner was Spiro Agnew. And then there were just hundreds of articles, hundreds of newspaper clippings about a scandal that erupted over the Mount Victory Coal Company that brought Spiro Agnew into it. And we could not believe that here in Somerset, Kentucky, on the one hand, this mysterious man who might be a Nazi intelligence agent, who definitely was a man of mystery, who became the largest stock market manipulator in U.S. history until 1959, who was linked to the JFK assassination in more ways than one, and then we find out he purchased the mine 
this mine in Somerset, Kentucky from Lester Burns and Spiro Agnew. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable that we had missed that, but it also felt like something had shifted. And frankly, it felt like we were being fucked with. It just was one of those things that's just unbelievable. Why would Spiro Agnew own a mine in Somerset, Kentucky, and then sell it to this mystery man who, after purchasing the mine, moved his entire financial empire to Somerset, Kentucky in 1975? Well, Agnew, I mean, especially with, uh, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that he would get on this because of the fact that the Nixon you know, administration had changed the tax codes to be beneficial to coal companies. And I'm sure he would have been one of the first people to be like, oh, yeah, that's a great you know, way to make some money. But the connection with the Philippines is so significant, too, because that was essentially where the Japanese had stashed a lot of the loot that they had taken from mainland Asia. And, of course, you know, a lot has been said about the Nazis looting, but the Japanese went well beyond that. I mean, they took a lot of these, you know, priceless golden Buddhist statues from the Koreas and so forth, and they melted them down into gold bars, and they ended up stashing them in these huge subterranean lairs, essentially that they had constructed in the Philippines. And um, after they had been driven out by the uh, you know, United States, uh, eventually army intelligence had found out about these stashes. Uh, the general who had done it was um, uh, Yashimite or something like that. Sometimes it's called Yashimite's gold. Sometimes it's called the golden lily and what have you. But um, the guy who really looked over this was General Charles Willoughby, MacArthur's spy master, who would later end up in that secret society I told you guys about, the Sovereign Order of St. John. And another guy who was deeply involved in it was a former OSS man named Edward Lansdale. You know, you had this just, you know, this vast hoard of black market gold that was buried in the Philippines. And this is the reason why, to this day, the Philippines is still a major hub for financing terrorism. This gold has just been used for years to fund a lot of off-the-books covert operations and what have you. I mean, the first guy who revealed this was actually an artist named Lark, uh, Mark Lombardo, who did these strange sketches that he called interlocks. And it was basically just a list of names and companies and what have you. And it went into all their different connections and so forth. And Lombardo had insider sources, um, several people from Texas and what have you, who were big and, you know, local politics there. They knew a lot of dirt on the Bush family. And he was the first one to really bring out this, you know, connection with Japan and the Golden Lily and all this other stuff. And I mean, these crime syndicates there, the Yakuza, the Chinese triads who were linked up with Taiwan really took over this kind of stuff. And that, you know, was a major source of just black market funding for all kinds of crazy stuff for years between the drugs and the gold and whatnot. So that's especially interesting when you guys are talking about Lester Burns and Spear Agnew raising money from this from Asia, because a lot of that was probably this drug money and this freaking, you know, black market gold that I'm talking about. And then in turn, the coal companies probably would have been a great way to launder that kind of money back into the United States. One of the more interesting things we uncovered about Katerma is that he's named in the gemstone file as a co-conspirator in the JFK assassination. For those of you who are unfamiliar with what the gemstone file is, it's a document that was created by Bruce Porter Roberts and distributed originally in 1975 by hand and mail in a photocopy pamphlet. Roberts, a conspiracy theorist who is known by Stephanie Corona and May Brussel, began gathering and putting together the file, supposedly, after Howard Hughes stole his invention for processing synthetic gemstones. 
The Gemstone File links a lot of people to the JFK assassination and provides an outline of the conspiracy that Roberts believed he had uncovered. And Guterm is listed in the document as an associate of George de Mornschild, who is one of the most famous figures to come out of the JFK assassination. He was a petroleum geologist and a professor who befriended Lee Harvey Oswald in the summer of 1962. De Mornschild was also the longest testifying witness in the Warren Commission investigation to determine if JFK had been assassinated. He was also called to testify in 1977 before the House Committee on Assassinations after they reopened the JFK assassination. The day that DeMornschelt was supposed to testify in 1977, he went upstairs in his house, took a shotgun, and he blew his head off. And in 1977, the same week that DeMornschelt committed suicide, Alexander Guterma was flying from Boca Raton, Florida, to New York City, to Madison Square Gardens with his entire family to attend a circus. But at the last minute, he diverted his plane to Somerset, Kentucky. After he took off from Somerset and continued his trip to New York City, the plane encountered engine difficulties and crashed in Brooklyn in a park, killing Guterma and his entire family, except for one child, who incidentally was killed in another plane crash eight years later. It's odd that Guterma was connected to DeMornschelt and that he also, it is believed, was going to be called to testify before the House Committee on Assassinations. Newspapers at the time contained front-page news stories with both DeMornschelt's suicide and Guterma's plane crash. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.